I'm going to be reading from Luke uh, chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we're going to read verses 19 through 22. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire uh, not only to understand uh, your Passion Week, the Father, to be strengthened in our lives and in our service to you as a result. Bless the preaching of your word and bless this, your people. Quicken the word to their hearts by faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me quickly read the first part of verse 22 again. It says, And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. He said truly because he didn't want them to be questioning anything he was about to be saying. And secondly, he says everything that had been happening to him and that would be happening, including his betrayal, had been predetermined, even who and when he would be betrayed, was determined. And this is really a common theme that you can see all the way through the Gospels. Theologians uh, describe it as the divine day, D-E-I, that's a Greek word that speaks of a necessity that was driving every moment of Christ's life. Let me give you some examples of that. In John 4, verse 4, it says that Jesus needed, that's the Greek word day, he needed to go through Samaria. And at the time, his disciples were thinking, needed? Why? This is way, way out of our way where we're eventually going to be going. But he needed to go to Samaria because God had a divine appointment uh, with the woman at the well. In uh, 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 Luke 13, verse 13, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I must, that's the Greek word day, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. Now, there were people who had previously tried to kill Jesus outside of Jerusalem, and uh, they could not. And the Gospels tell us why they could not. It says, because his hour had not yet come. Now the festival has come, and it's time for Jesus to die, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, all of these people are saying, let's not kill him during the Passover, lest there be a riot. Uh, they wanted to do it after the Passover, but Jesus had to die during this festival because everything that was prophesied 1,500 years before had to be fulfilled. He went as it had been determined. Verse 27 of that same chapter spoke of the hour that he should be glorified. Mark 13:1 spoke of the hour that he should leave the world. And uh, all through the Passion Week, you can see that God was determining things down to the hour, and on three of those occasions, you can see it down to the minute. And yet, surprisingly, it is the timing of the uh, Passion Week that has come under so much criticism. 
It is the timing of these events that has made some evangelicals stop being evangelicals. They still call themselves Christians, but they say, well, I guess the inerrancy of Scripture uh, is uh, not there. And it has been the timing of these events that has led some people, including pastors, to abandon the faith. People like Dan Barker, who eventually became an atheist, even wrote a book on it. Now, I don't uh, believe for a minute that it was uh, the apparent contradictions that made him abandon the faith. I think it was an evil heart and the fact that he was not elect. Because you cannot lose your salvation if you're truly saved. Uh, God cannot be frustrated on that any more than any detail in the Passion Week could be frustrated. It was determined uh, far before the foundation of the world. But I still found it surprising that Dan Barker, who seems like a you know, fairly open about everything that he went through. He said, I had all of these puzzles in the Gospels and in other places, contradictions, and I'd talk to my pastor friends, because he was a pastor, uh, and say, how do you explain these things? And they I don't know. Uh, they didn't want to think about it. And uh, one of the pastors just told him, oh, you just got to have a blind trust in God. And he said that was where he began to have these doubts. And it just surprises me. They didn't have any answers. I mean, that's really... Uh, that's really crazy. And he, along with a number of other people, have realized the enormous problems that have arisen with a traditional understanding of the Passion Week. Here's how one evangelical commentator uh, by the name of John Wenham words it. You may have some of his commentaries, some of you. But he says, Now it so happens that the story of Jesus' resurrection is told by five different writers whose accounts differ from each other to an astonishing degree. We're talking about an evangelical here, right? Quote, unquote. He says, The accounts differ from each other to an astonishing degree, so much so that distinguished scholars, one after another, have said categorically that the five accounts, Paul's included, are irreconcilable. Going back to the last century, the great radical P.W. Schmiedel said, The Gospels exhibit contradictions of the most glaring kind. Remeris enumerated ten contradictions, but in reality their number is much greater. Even the doughty conservative, Henry Alford, wrote, Of all harmonies, those of the incidents of these chapters are to me the most unsatisfactory. They seem to me to weaken instead of strengthening the evidence. I have abandoned all idea of harmonizing throughout. It's a rather cheerful way to start a sermon. <laughs> Now, I'm really cheerful about uh, the Passion Week because I believe that every little tiny detail of this week can be perfectly, beautifully uh, harmonized in a way that brings glory to the Lord. In fact, I've just been blessed uh, this past week with the words of our passage here. Truly, he, he's indicating you can bank on everything in this Passion Week. Everything I'm telling you about is going to happen. You can bank on the chronology. Truly. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Now, that does not mean it won't take a lot of work. Uh, it does take a lot of work. And about Friday, I regretted that I'd even picked this passage. I thought, am I going to be able to figure everything, every one of these details out in time to be able to uh, get a sermon pulled together? A lot of this hinges on whether Jesus was crucified on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Now, the traditional view has been that Jesus was crucified on Friday. And when you read one of the resurrection accounts, it makes sense because it says the next day was the Sabbath. Okay, Sabbath is on Saturday, so he's crucified on Friday. 
lies in the grave on Saturday, he rises on Sunday. What's the big deal, you know? But all down through history, any of the theologians who have deeply wrestled with the text have pulled their hair out trying to uh, reconcile a Friday crucifixion with all of the other details that are very, very clearly laid out in the Gospels. How do you do it? And there's been all kinds of books and papers that have been written. If you hold to a Friday crucifixion, it messes up the number of days that you count down from Nisan 10 to the time of the resurrection. It messes up Palm Sunday and makes it a Palm Monday, unless you insert a day in there that the Gospels don't talk about and the, the liberals are outraged. that that is so arbitrary to just say, okay, well, we're going to insert a day in there. The Gospels indicate nothing about that, about that extra day. If you're going to hold to Friday and um, you're going to have Christ crucified on the day that the temple of uh, the lambs were slain, that would be Nisan 14, then it messes up the year of his death and it makes it impossibly early or impossibly late. Now, if you believe, okay, well, we can't go that direction. Jesus had to have been crucified on AD 30. And most scholars, if they're looking at all the other evidence, it just seems like a slam dunk. Jesus was crucified on 30 AD. So if you adopt that, then what's happened in recent years is people have, um, uh, they said, well, he's got to be crucified on Nisan uh, 15. So if you believe he's crucified in 30 AD, it messes up the other parts of the week. It messes up the prophetic uh, significance of when the lambs were set apart, the presentation at the temple, his anointing. If he died on Nisan 15, then the specific Passover meal that he ate had lamb in it, something that the gospel seemed to deny, and something that messes up the institution of the Lord's Supper. It also keeps Christ from fulfilling the Passover calendar timing of dying, like I mentioned, when the lambs die. Now, there are other, other issues that the Friday theory gets right. Uh, I, I'm not questioning that, but as I painstakingly tried to evaluate, what are all the details? Because I am not satisfied until every little detail falls into place. Otherwise, you're forcing a piece into the puzzle where it doesn't belong. But once I, I, I worked through it, once again, I came to the view that I've had for years that the Thursday crucifixion beautifully resolves all of the problems. It brings a, a symmetry. In fact, it, um, it answers just about every uh, objection that is out there. Time uh, magazine, uh, actually it was Time Life magazine uh, a number of years ago, did an article that just ripped to shreds the gospel accounts, but it was all presupposing a Friday resurrection. All of those arguments just disappear. They evaporate when you have a Thursday crucifixion. And so there's just going to be two points here. The first point deals... Never had a sermon that short, did you? Two points. <laughs> well, don't hold your breath too long. Two points. First point answers the question of on what day Jesus died on. The second point then gives an overview of the beautiful symmetry that results if you understand that first question right. And by the way, this is, this is not Phil Kreiser trying to do a sales job so you will listen to a boring sermon on chronology, okay? It's not that at all. This is not a sermon for eggheads. This is a sermon that's going to help you to appreciate uh, once again that Jesus went on every detail as it had been determined. There were over a hundred prophecies that were fulfilled to a T, just in a marvelous, marvelous way. And um, I, well, 
we got a deal, first of all. You can't get to the symmetry until you realize what day he's born on. So here's the first point. How a Thursday crucifixion answers the so-called contradictions that the liberals throw at us. Now, liberals have repeatedly objected that Matthew 27, 63, Mark 8, verse 31, John 2, verse 19, all say that Jesus was in the grave three days... And yet on a Friday resurrection, he would have been in the grave a maximum of 39 hours, probably a lot less than 39 hours. And so here's how they would calculate it. We're, we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Give them the most, most hours you could possibly give to them. Uh, he's in the grave just before 6 p.m. But let's say, okay, Jesus dies at 3 p.m. So 3 p.m. on Friday to 3 p.m. on Saturday, that's 24 hours. 3 p.m. on Saturday to 6 a.m. on Sunday morning. That's the very latest that Christ could have risen from the grave. That's another 15 hours. So that adds up to 39. And the liberals say, hey, 39 is a tad bit short of 72 hours. And so they scoff at uh, the, 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 the Christians and they say, he wasn't in the grave three days. Actually, that particular question, that's not a fair question because it's uh, fairly easy for the Friday theorists uh, to answer in Jewish counting, days were usually numbered inclusively, counting the first day as well as the last day. So three days does not mean you have to have three 24-hour periods from the time that, you, uh, that, that Jesus died. You just have to have it covering three portions, I mean portions of three days. And um, the Wednesday theory insists it's got to be three 24-hour periods but it can mean any period of time that runs over those days. So let's count that. Uh, Friday, he's in the grave. Saturday, Sunday, there's your three days. That's counting inclusively, and that's a very for a common form of counting. So that's really not a fair uh, objection for them to bring. But if you look at Matthew 12 and verse 40, you're going to see a passage that I've, I've read dozens and dozens of Friday defenses. I've never seen anyone that can answer this particular objection. Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's different than saying three days. You've got to have at least three portions of daylight and three portions of night, and you just cannot do that any way that you count on the uh, Friday theory. Now, since John 20, verse 1, says that Jesus rose before it was a light, it was still dark when the women came to the tomb, Jesus was already arisen. On the Friday theory, that means that Jesus would have only been in the grave for a tiny portion of Friday's daylight and for Saturday's daylight. That's two days, and they're not full days. And he would have been in the grave for uh, Friday night and for Saturday night. So that's two days and two nights. That's not three days and three nights. So even in counting inclusively, you cannot get there. Now let me explain the difference between counting inclusively and counting exclusively, because you may not have thought about that before. If, you've, uh, if you're putting up fence posts for a thousand feet uh, of a roadway, uh, and you're going to do it every 20 feet, you're going to have a post, 
how do you figure out how many posts that you have? Well, you might think, well, you just divide 20 into 1,000, you come up with 50, you got 50 fence posts. You'll actually be one short because you got the first fence post and the last fence post, 51 is how many you need. That's counting inclusively. So we commonly do that. It's not something that's an odd way uh, of counting at all. And on calendars, you can count either inclusively or exclusively. Exclusively would be saying, you know, uh, it's Sunday today. In a couple days, I'm going to be leaving by airplane. So you're going to expect I'm going to be leaving on Tuesday because you don't count today, Monday and Tuesday. You're counting two days. Inclusively, you'd be counting from t- today uh, till uh, uh, later on in the week. And almost all of the so-called mistakes that people make in terms of timing of days is the difference between inclusive and exclusive counting. They're just different ways of counting, and you can look in all kinds of books. You can even look on Wikipedia, and they'll talk about inclusive counting, exclusive counting. It was common in the Old Testament, common in the ancient world, it's common in present world. So don't think anything about that. That's very, very common. So on the Wednesday theory, the, liber- uh, the, uh, the Wednesday theorists try to answer the liberals by saying, hey, Jesus was crucified on Wednesday. It wasn't in 30 AD. It was a different day. Uh, year of the uh, of the calendar, and he was in the grave for a full 72 hours, three 24-hour periods. Now, it's legitimate if the, the text calls for it, but even though that's an answer to liberals on some points, it raises up a whole plethora of other problems in the, in the text. Now, I'm not going to be focusing too much on the Wednesday theory today. On your charts, uh, pages 2 and, and 3, Uh, you'll see that there are 20 biblical anchors that I have given, and I'm judging and evaluating each of the three theories on. And you'll notice on those charts there that the Wednesday theory only scores nine out of a possible 20. Now, that's better than the Friday theory. Friday theory only scores six out of a possible 20. We're going for broke. We're going 20 for 20, okay? We want every piece of the puzzle uh, to fit in there. And I'm not going to go over the whole uh, chart with you, but I want to just get you started, and you can study that chart on your own. But let's go through a few of these. How does the Thursday theory match up on scoreboard number one? Three days and three nights. Well, if you look at page one, and there's a little chart on the bottom left of um, page one there, it's called Christ's Death at the Passover, you'll see that it does match. Now, I've done it visually because Jewish days start at 6 p.m. in the evening, and that just kind of messes with our brains because how do you overlap our days with their days? So I've drawn it out visually. The dark parts are the night periods. The day parts are the white periods, and you can see them all counted out for you there. There were three daytime periods, and there were three nighttime periods in 30 A.D. if you take a Thursday crucifixion. Uh, So unlike the Friday theory where there's two days and two nights, remember that? We've got three days and three nights. Now, it is counting inclusively, but it's there. Now, back to point two on the scorecard. Uh, This is on page two. Does it meet the second criteria of the sequence being three days and three nights rather than three nights and three days? Uh, and the, the, uh, we have to say, yes, absolutely it does, because Jesus was put into the grave clearly 
uh, the day before the Sabbath, before the, 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 the night came. So he was a part of that daylight period. It starts with days, it starts with nights. Now, the Wednesday theory says that Jesus had to have been put into the tomb right at 6 p.m., right at twilight. So their counting is three nights and three days. Now, that's just a tiny little point, but they are so preoccupied with being correct down to the hour, and they claim that they are. I just point out, no, you're not exactly uh, detailed like that. Um, We think we should be detailed, right down to the minute, if you so please. But uh, it does not fit uh, their particular theory. Now, the third point on the scorecard is that Mark 8, verse 31, says that Jesus would be killed and after three days rise again. Now, that word after creates huge problems for the Wednesday theory as well as for the uh, Friday theory. Uh, The Wednesday theory bases its whole system on their claim that you can only count any days in the Bible on an exclusive counting method. Because Jesus at one point had defined the day as having 12 hours and the night as having 12 hours, so it's got to be 24 hours. So only an exclusive method of counting. In fact, really, there's no reason to even believe the Wednesday counting unless you insist on an exclusive method of counting. So this goes against that, but it also rules out the Friday system because you cannot account for a resurrection after three days, no matter how you slice it, how you dice it, how you count it. You cannot do it. It just does not work. Um, They try to make the after refer to being after the capture, after the interrogation. Look at the text there. It is very clearly after he was killed. It has to be after he was killed. If Jesus was buried late on Friday afternoon, Sunday is not after three days because you got Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's counting inclusively. It's not, it's within those three days. It's not after those three days, okay? So liberals, um, now on Thursday, I should point out on the Thursday one, it fits perfectly. You've got Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That's counting inclusively. And Sunday is after that, right? After Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So it fits perfectly. Now, liberals will object and they say, okay, wait a minute, Kaiser, you can't have your cake and eat it too. This says he's going to be resurrected after three days, but I've got another scripture that says he would be resurrected within three days. Those are mutually exclusive. How could he be resurrected within three days and also be resurrected after three days? That's a total logical contradiction. And my first response to these guys is to say, look, Mr. Liberal, you think Mark is such an idiot that within 37 verses he's going to make such a blatant contradiction? I mean, that's obvious to anybody, uh, you know, that there's something going on there. No, I don't think Mark is that, uh, that silly. What the liberals are failing to ask is, what is the audience that Mark is writing to? What is the audience? Here's the clue. Mark himself says, after three days... But he records Jesus as saying within or in three days. Okay? Um, Mark Mark 8.31 and Mark 9.31. Those are the two scriptures that I'm referring to. So there are two different people that are uh, speaking here. And here is the point. Jesus was speaking to Jews who tended to count inclusively. 
And Mark is writing to Romans who tended to write exclusively. But Mark wants to record everything with absolute accuracy. So even if it might bring confusion, he accurately records Christ's words, and then he explains those words to the Romans. Talk about accuracy. This is accuracy to the nth degree. He wants to accurately quote Christ, but he also wants to explain to the Romans on their system of of, of banking. Now, when he does that, and they see these two, they know both inclusive and exclusive counting. They say, oh yeah, okay, I understand. Jesus was counting inclusively. Mark was counting exclusively. It would not have been a puzzle at all. It's only if you've got an ax to grind that you see that as being a puzzle. Now, both the Wednesday and the Friday theories fail to account for the different phrases that I've got listed there. They insist that the Scripture can only be counted one way. Uh, Wednesday theory says it can only be counted exclusively. Friday theory says it can only be counted inclusively. In fact, uh, several uh, Friday theory papers have insisted uh, inclusive counting is always the way Hebrews do it. Exclusive is always the way the Western mind does it, the, 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 the Gentiles did. Now, there's a sense in which that's true. There tended to be a dominance of one or the other, but you cannot say it was exclusive. In fact, I, didn't I just give you an example in Western thinking? We're Westerners, aren't we? On fe- fence posts. We do it all the time. We use inclusive counting all of the time. Now, on the other hand, a Wednesday theory advocate, let me see if I can find the quote here, uh, he said... I can't think of a single example of inclusive counting in the Scripture. Now, that is patently ridiculous. Every commentator, when commenting on Luke 13, verse 32, says this is an example of inclusive counting. Let me read it for you. I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. So his counting explicitly includes today. Anytime you include today, that's exclusive, I mean, that's inclusive, uh, that's inclusive uh, counting. So both forms of counting you'll find in the Old Testament, both you'll find in the New Testament, you'll find both forms of counting today. But uh, uh, the, the Hebrews, it's true, they tended to emphasize inclusive counting, and that's what the Thursday theory and the Friday theory bank on. And Romans tended to emphasize the exclusive kind of counting. So it makes sense that uh, Mark would do this. And I don't think anybody would have been, would have been puzzled uh, over that. Okay, let's go on to the next one. The fifth point is that the Friday theory messes up a big chunk of the prophetic calendar. Now, it didn't used to. It didn't used to. Um, Edersheim tried to rescue the Friday theory by having Jesus crucified on 34 A.D., and he didn't have the benefit of uh, computers to calculate lunar cycles all the way back to that time. So it's really amazing that this guy was only off by one day. This is a brilliant, brilliant man. If you don't know Alfred Edersheim, an amazing man. But um, if you're off by one day, it messes everything up. And in 1973 and following, uh, they started using computers to calculate back. And they thought, oops, uh-oh, uh, Edersheim was wrong on that. So we're going to have to have a different date that people are going to come up with. Now, there are a lot of other problems with a 33 or a 34 A.D. date, too. And so most scholars, if they're not wrestling with these, trying to resolve these things, they say all of the evidence points to 30 A.D. That's where I believe Jesus was crucified, too. Pretty solid date. 
But here's the problem. That has forced a whole lot of new thinking. Uh, All of the older papers are messed up. So don't even go looking for papers that are prior to 1973. That has opened up a whole new... Now, actually, we've not had to change. Anybody's held to the Thursday, we just used the Scriptures. We didn't use anything else. We've not had to change a thing. But uh, there's been a plethora of new uh, papers written by the Friday advocates, and that's one of the reasons why I was wrestling through things, because they were coming up with a number of evidences that I was thinking, whoa, okay, I've not seen that before. But as I started going through it, more and more I realized they're conveniently leaving out some scriptures and they're conveniently doing things according to a theoretical calendar that was not used by the temple. And it was at the temple that the lambs uh, were slain. It was at the temple that first fruits happened. So anyway, it's still a big mess. One of the problems is that Nisan 15, the day that they were saying, they're now saying that Jesus is crucified on because they had to change it from Nisan 14 where uh, the lambs were slain. They say, okay, well, maybe Jesus wasn't slain on that day. He's slain on Nisan 15. Here's, here's the first problem. That was a Sabbath. In fact, it was a high Sabbath. There were seven high Sabbaths in uh, a year, and this was one of the most important Sabbath days. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 19. We're kind of putting a little puzzle together here. John chapter 19, look at verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. He's explaining this is not your usual Sabbath. He's distinguishing Sabbaths here. That Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, the key thing to notice is that the legalistic Jews, they did not want anybody, any of these three, to be hanging on that cross during the Sabbath day. They wanted them taken down. But these Friday advocates, now that they've changed, they're wanting us to believe, oh, yeah, they wouldn't want uh, them on a regular Sabbath day. But on a Passover Sabbath, yeah, that's okay. No, I don't think so. There's absolutely no evidence that these Pharisees would be any less strict on a Passover Sabbath than they would on any other Sabbath. It's just not credible. Look at verse 42. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. They're in a real hurry. They they cannot uh, protract things because the Sabbath is almost upon them. And the Friday theory guys are saying, now this is the Saturday Sabbath. I say, no, no, not at all. Um, uh, John has already defined the day of preparation he's talking about. Take a look at verse 14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover. This is not the preparation day for the regular week. This is the preparation day of the Passover. So there was a a Passover day, um, a Sabbath, and immediately following it was the weekly Sabbath. And so the day that Christ was crucified on was clearly Nisan 15, if he was crucified in in 30 AD, clearly Nisan 15. So there there goes the Friday theory. Now, if you look at the Jewish calendar for 30 AD, you'll find that Nisan 14 was on Thursday. That's when the temple lands were crucified. Nisan 15 is on Friday, 
and Nissan 16 is on Saturday. And it is inconceivable to me that all of the disciples could assume when Judas left, oh, he's going out to purchase some things. Now, wait a minute. All the stores are closed on, sat on, on um, yeah, Saturdays, but they're closed on any Sabbath day. Where would he go out and buy things? That doesn't make sense. And it's inconceivable to me that Nicodemus, who is one of the rulers of the Jews, that he would go out to buy linen on the Sabbath, or even that anybody else would sell him li linen. They'd get in trouble if they sold anything on the Sabbath. So that's scoreboards number eight and number nine. If you are off by one day, it's like dominoes falling. Everything falls apart. Now, one other interesting note is that both Matthew and Mark appear to be talking about plural Sabbaths. This has confused a number of commentators. Sabbaths, after the Sabbaths has finished, there's plural Sabbaths that are being talked about, but there is only one day of preparation. One day of preparation. Christ was crucified on the preparation day of Passover. We already established that. So point number seven argues against the Wednesday theory too. There, there's no evidence that there were two days of preparation. See, if the Wednesday theory is correct, Wednesday has to be a day of preparation and Friday has to be a day of preparation. But we don't have any indication like that. There's one day of preparation with nothing in between. And of course, if you look in the calendar at 30 AD, there were two back-to-back -back Sabbaths. And you would have only needed one day of preparation for both of those. So it fits the evidence there. Now I want you to read... I want to read to you the late James Montgomery Boyce, 10th uh, Presbyterian. He was a PCA pastor, a real scholar. But uh, he says about these two Sabbaths, Matthew's account of the events of the resurrection morning begins in the end of the Sabbaths, plural, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Matthew 28, 1. The plural Sabbaths, has been a puzzle to many commentators and translators who usually change it to the singular Sabbath. But the plural is completely explained if there were actually two Sabbaths, the Friday Passover Sabbath and the Saturday Sabbath back to back. Now let me try to wind down this section. We're not going to go through the whole chart there, but if the Thursday crucifixion is correct, it makes a big difference. It means that Jesus partook of the first Passover meal on Nisan 14, not the lamb Passover meal on Nisan 15. And we're backing up. If you're looking on there, it's number five on your scoreboard. If Jesus ate the Passover meal on Wednesday evening at the beginning of Nisan 14, which is the way I believe it, it, it was, then he ate a meatless meal. The whole meal was a ceremony with bread and wine. Lambs would not be slain until eight hours later. They would not be eaten until 24 hours later. Is it 24 hours? Yeah, it'd be the next evening. 18 hours? I, I messed up on, on the eight hours, I think. But it would be uh, the next day that they would be slain. The same bread and wine was eaten on uh, both of those days, but Nisan 15, the lamb was the focus, not the bread. As we're going to be seeing in a moment, what the Lord's table does is it completely abolishes any of the sacrifices, okay? He, he did not want any competition. He was not going to uh, memorialize and, and institutionalize forever um, uh, a meat and blood. He was going to have bread now symbolize the, the broken flesh of Christ. He was going to have the wine symbolize 
the, the blood of Christ. There was no longer going to be anybody able, if they're following Christ, able to eat uh, of the old ceremony that's going to be of the new. Now here are some of the other things that would be messed up if you make a correction and have Jesus slain on the right day of the month, but the wrong year. First problem is that all you have to do is go to any modern lunar calendar program on the computer and you'll find that Friday only falls on Nisan 14 in AD 26, which is way, way too early, or AD 33, which is way, way too late. So you're really stuck. If you insist on a good Friday, you're really stuck. Uh, if you rightly hold he was crucified in 30 AD, you don't solve anything. In fact, you add to the problems that liberals throw and attack you with. If you say, okay, we're going to have him on Nisan 14, we're going to ignore the problems with the year, we're going to have him either in 26 AD or 33 AD, you still have problems. You've got a Palm Monday instead of a Palm Sunday, and their whole purpose of defending Friday is to support tradition. So they're going to support tradition here, and they're going to ignore tradition there. And it just doesn't work. Um, and so uh, you've got missing days. Uh, you're going to find that Jesus does not die when the lambs die. He still is not in the tomb for three days and three nights. And there's a whole bunch of other uh, problems. For example, Jesus would be slain. Uh, let me get it exactly right here. Two hours later than the lambs are slain. And the darkness would come two hours too late to stop the lambs from being slain. So there's a lot of ways in which it's messed up. It was uniquely in 30 AD that those two Sabbaths line up back to back and a, new, a, a provision that's in the law comes in. When you got two Sabbaths back to back, then the lambs are slain at 3 p.m. That's when Jesus dies, not at 1 p.m., which is the normal time. So anyway, I won't get into all of the details. There's a whole pile of evidence uh, that I'm not going to get into, but Thursday fits the New Covenant institution, new calendar. It focuses attention so exquisitely on Jesus. There is, I predict in another 50 years or 100 years, I think most theologians are going to embrace a Thursday um, a crucifixion uh, theory. Already there's a whole bunch that are leaving. Uh, these computer programs are just forcing them to this conclusion. And uh, uh, advocate, Friday advocates like Ernest Martin, before he died, he switched to a Thursday thing. It just makes sense. So I'm not going to bore you with all of the other 14 points uh, that progressively build a case. Uh, I've given you the chart so you can study it on your own. But what I want to do right now is I want to show you the beauty, the exquisite beauty that that Passion Week was supposed to show to you. This is, this is the way it should be. Ten days before Christ was crucified, he was anointed with oil for his burial on the very day that the temple lambs out in the fields of Bethlehem, that they would have been marked out and consecrated for death. Now, over the next 10 days, those lambs have to be checked every single day. This is a public thing that they go through. And every day of the next days are accounted for on a Thursday theory. Jesus is a public lamb. They've brought accusations against him, but they can find no blemish in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on the Friday theory, there's one day missing. Some people say there's two day missings. Uh, but in a lot of the, even the older um, articles that are written, they talk about the puzzling missing Wednesday. There is no missing day on, uh, on the Thursday theory. He's on public display as a lamb without blemish. 
Then there's the triumphal entry on Nisan 10. I've talked about this one before when Jesus uh, goes to the temple. Why is he going to the temple at that particular time? Because that's the very time that uh, what Josephus estimates to be 250,000 lambs are marching through the streets uh, toward the temple in Jerusalem. This is just an absolutely remarkable uh, scene that he goes through. And they're going there because the priests are later going to kill them. They have to examine them. So Jesus is going to the very ones who will kill the temple lambs and the very ones who will kill him. Now, this brings a whole new dimension to the words of Jesus in John chapter 12 when he talks about his impending death as he's marching through those lambs toward the temple. He was being declared as the the Lamb of God. So all of this is very self-conscious. He was fulfilling prophecy in perfect synchronization with the festival rituals. Now, if you look at the chart on the Passover meaning, this is page, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four. Um, on the Passover meaning, you'll see it all perfectly pointed to Jesus. And I'm just going to very, very quickly read through this. He was the Lamb of God. He was a Lamb without blemish. He was in His prime. He was anointed four days before His Passover. He was crucified on the 14th. Just as all Israel had to kill the Lamb in Exodus 12:6, all Israel is accused of killing Jesus in the Gospels, just as you and I killed Jesus with our sins. Just as the blood of the Lamb was applied to the doorpost, Scripture says that the blood had to be applied to every area of our life. In fact, it is a family redemption, isn't it? It's a household redemption that, uh, that He uh, applies to every aspect of our lives. Uh, just as blood was applied to the threshold, threshold is the part you walk over, blood was applied to there to symbolize that when you step over that threshold, you are leaving Egypt... And you are now committing yourself 100% to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it symbolized in Exodus 12. Well, Hebrews says exactly the same thing. It says, when we come to Christ, we are stepping out of the world and into the household of God. And if we abandon that household, where are we going? We're going over that threshold. We are trampling underfoot the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read that verse. Of how much worth punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? So we need to hide. We need to stay in the household of God, Hebrews 10, uh, Hebrews, um, yeah, what is it? Hebrews says somewhere. We need to stay there. And that was just as the Exodus people were told, look, if you leave the house, you will be killed. So you cannot leave. Even if you're a professing believer, you leave, you're dead. Okay, so that's the way it is, he says, in the new covenant as well. We can only be spared as we stay in Christ. Just as they had to eat all of it, John 6 tells all of the grumblers and the complainers when he says, you've got to eat my blood and uh, eat my uh, flesh and drink my blood. And they're offended in him. He tells them, look, you take me the way you see me. If you're offended in me, you, you cannot have any salvation. And then even the disciples, they're like, whoa, boy, these are tough words. And he says, okay, are you going to go too? And they said, where can we go, Lord? Because you have the ways of eternal life. And so 
you can see these parallels all the way through here. Just as the lamb in the Old Testament was roasted with fire, Jesus came under the fire of God's judgment. Just as it had to be eaten immediately, Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time to turn to the Lord. Just as bitter herbs were eaten in remembrance of the sufferings of Egypt, Christ redeems us from the bitterness of sin. Just as what was left over of the lamb, if you couldn't eat all the lamb, it had to be burned. Not one drop, not one piece, a morsel of that lamb could go to a stranger. Well, in the same way, Christ's redemption is effective for the elect alone. Jesus said, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He said this during that Passover festival. Not one bit of the Passover lamb could go to those outside the covenant. Revelation 5.9 says that we are redeemed out of every tribe and people and tongue. Out of. They're not redeemed. The people are redeemed out of. Uh, just as not one bone of the lamb could be broken, John 19 says, this was a prophecy that not one bone of Christ would be broken. Okay, just as the Passover had to be eaten with haste, we're admonished with haste to forsake all and to follow after him. Just as they fled from Egypt upon eating of that lamb, we are to flee from the wrath to come. Just as Egypt was judged by the death angel, those who are not redeemed, they will be judged. Just as there was no leaven in the Passover meal, Christ dealt with the leaven of sin once and for all. And by the way, this is the reason why the next festival, which is Pentecost, has leaven in it. Okay? He dealt with the leaven of sin and he brings in the leaven of the kingdom. Right? So there's an expansion of sin in the Old Covenant, but he, the cross reverses that. Now there's an expansion of righteousness. There's an expansion of his kingdom that is going on. Now, I'm going to come back to uh, some events in a moment, but there is a significance to the timing of uh, Christ being nailed to the cross as well as the darkness that went from noon uh, to three o'clock in the afternoon, three hours of darkness. Those were the precise hours that the preparations were supposed to be made by the priests for those 250,000 lambs that they were going to be slaying. And they had to end the slaying itself at 5 o'clock to give people time to get back to their dwellings uh, before the, the Sabbath came on. That's a lot of lambs to prepare from noon until 3 o'clock. And then that's a lot of lambs to slay from 3 o'clock until 5 o'clock, 250,000 lambs. So they had to be extremely well organized. Everything had to glow like lock, clockwork. You could not have any slowdowns whatsoever. In fact, you got all of these people lined up and boom, boom, boom. They went through this like an assembly line. Uh, Josephus tells us there were three million people that would come from around the world to celebrate the Passover at Jerusalem every year. Now, not all of them would be at the temple uh, because you could have 10 per lamb. Ten people. So Josephus says there's usually about 250,000 people hanging out in the temple, outside the temple, down the streets, waiting to get their lamb. Now, just imagine that. These huge crowds, they're waiting for 12 o'clock to arrive so that now the lambs can start to be prepared. In order to accommodate it, it had to start at noon. It wouldn't get done if it didn't begin at noon, and the people had to be standing there ready. When darkness struck the nation at noon, it was a thick darkness that nobody, no light could penetrate. 
So you've got 250,000 people out there. They haven't brought any lanterns with them. They couldn't run anywhere. They'd get trampled. They'd all be killed, okay? So they just have to, if they're going to survive, just sit down for three hours. God wants to make sure that the whole nation of Israel would not be able to deny the incredible events that God was going to be bringing upon them. They were a captive audience to the world's greatest drama. Then, here's what happens at uh, 3 o'clock when the lights go back on. This is the hour at which Jesus dies. And I'm putting this together from a number of historical witnesses that lived at that time. Josephus, a Roman historian, and the Talmud. They would have seen the massive doors of the temple open up on their own. They would have heard a loud voice saying, We are leaving this place. Now that would have been freaky enough on its own. Glory cloud leaving. They would have felt an earthquake. And then the earthquake would have so shaken the temple that this huge lintel on which the outer curtain was hanging would fall to the ground. The curtain would fall with it. They're looking right down to the holy. They've never seen this before. They see the inner curtain being shredded from top to bottom by God himself. And it's just like, boom, it happens all there in front of them. Now, here's the thing. There's been no three hours of preparation for the lambs. At three o'clock when the lights come on, they're supposed to be sacrificing the lambs, but they're panicking. There's no time to sacrifice. There's no time to do anything. I doubt any of the people, or very many of the people, got their, uh, their Passover lambs uh, that day. It was the moment of Christ's death, and Jesus was the final lamb. He did not want any competition. Now, all of that symbolism I'm talking about is messed up on the modern fi uh, Friday theory. It does not happen. Well, what captures the people when they're going in there is they're able for the first time in history to see into the Holy of Holies. Thousands of priests would have seen it because they got conscripted all of the priests that they could to do the sacrificing, and probably tens of thousands of Israelites were positioned where they would have been able to see into the Holy of Holies. They could not hide this. God wanted it to be done in a way where this was a witness to the whole nation of Israel. It's no wonder to me that in Acts chapter 6, many priests became Christians. Christ, with one sweep of his hands, was, as it were, throwing away the sacrificial system, making it no longer unworkable, at least to those who had eyes to see. Now, there was also preparation uh, for the Feast of Firstfruits, which was always the first Sunday. By the way, it's a mistake to think it's always on the 16th. That was a way later tradition. If you look at the temple calendar, which the Friday theory and the Wednesday theory both ignore, you look at the temple calendar. That's where the first uh, Feast of first fruits happens. It's always on the first Sunday after. It doesn't matter if it's five days later, three days later, two days later. It's always on the first Sunday afterwards comes the festival of first fruits. So here's the preparation that they make for that. The day before Jesus was crucified, the elders would go out and they would mark a spot that they would later harvest and they would bind these sheaves together with a rope. Okay, this was the evening that the same elders sent representatives to bind Jesus. And guess where Jesus was bound? Guess where the grain was bound? Uh, we've talked about this at uh, one of the previous sermons a few years ago. The grain was bound uh, outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron. 
And Jesus was bound outside Jerusalem over the brook Kidron in the Garden of Gethsemane, which, according to Edersheim, bordered right on that field. Uh, just just sends shivers down your spine when you see some of these things. And so the grain was bound on the evening that Jesus was bound. And guess where it, when it was cut down? It was cut down the next afternoon before the Passover Sabbath, Nisan 15. And that was when Jesus was taken off of the cross. It was almost uh, Sabbath, uh, and that was why they had to find a nearby tomb. Now, let me read you a part of a description of first fruits harvest given by Edersheim. When the time for cutting the sheaf had arrived, that is, on the evening of the 15th of Nisan, and keep in mind their days start at 6 p.m., okay? Um, it says, even though it was a Sabbath, just as the sun went down, three men, each with a sickle and basket, set to work clearly to bring out what was distinctive in the ceremony. They asked first of the bystanders three times each of these questions. Has the sun gone down? with this sickle, into this basket, on this Sabbath, and lastly, shall I reap? Having each time been answered in the affirmative, they cut down barley to the amount of one ephah, or about three pecks and three pints of our English measure. And when you look at these details, you just see God's providence so clearly at work. It foreshadows the fact that the elders cut off Christ from the land of the living. They agreed to do it on the Passover timing. Now, I hadn't even probably thought about that, but they agreed to do it according to the Passover timing. And they asked the people just before they're going to be binding this grain, shall we do this? And all of the people agree. And with Jesus, that was the same. They said, crucify him, crucify him. And so the whole people are coming into agreement. So they're all applying the sickle to Jesus. Edersheim comments on the irony of the movement of the throng as they carried the basket of grain away at the very moment that Nicodemus and Joseph carried the, the body of Christ to a nearby tomb. A noisy throng followed delegates from the Sanhedrin outside the city and across the brook Kidron. It was a very different procession and for a different purpose from the small band of mourners which just about the same time carried the body of the dead Savior from the cross to the rock-hewn tomb wherein no man had yet lain. When the one turned into the garden, perhaps to the one side, the other emerged amidst loud demonstrations in a field across Kedron, which had been marked out for that purpose. They were to be engaged in a service most important to them. It was probably to this circumstance that Joseph of Arimathea owed their non-interference with his request for the body of Jesus and Nicodemus and the women that they could go undisturbed about the sad offices of loving mourners." So the heavy basket carrying those sheaves of grain stayed in the, the, the grain stayed in the baskets for three days and three nights, just as Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights. Always again, it's on the Sunday following the Passover. At that point, the grain was beaten. It was the chaff blown away. It was ground. It was purified and it was offered up to God as a, as a heave offering. Now, that grain represents the resurrection of all believers. But the only way we can be raised in the future, according to 1 Corinthians 15, is if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then legally we were counted as rising with Jesus. We were legally counted as dying with Him, being buried with Him, rising with Him, 
We are ascended with Him. Our whole identity is tied up uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so really, this whole Passion Week is an absolutely marvelous, marvelous synchronization of all of the festival uh, ceremonies. And I think it's important for us, as hard as it is to wrap our brains around it, it's important for us to understand details like this because it'll enable you to obey 1 Peter 3, verse 15, that says you need to always be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. But um, it also gives us uh, a very much encouragement, enables us to answer the doubts of, of, um, uh, of fellow believers, and it strengthens our faith in the power and the wisdom of God. See, just as his providence was governing every detail of the Passover, his providence continues to work. Just as Jesus could say with an absolute trust and boldness that he was going as it had been determined, you can say with an absolute boldness, I am going as it has been determined. I don't need to worry about financial collapses. I don't need to worry if the communists take over America. Uh, I know that I am going as it has been determined. I cannot die one day before it is God's time for me to die. My hour has not yet come, right? I cannot suffer beyond what God in His loving providence knows will be for my good and for His glory. This whole message should cause us to glory in His providence, glory in His grace, and trust Him the more. May it be so. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for the glory of salvation. And Father, we do not want to forget these details. We want to remind ourselves of them. And I thank you for the beautiful way in which these details synchronize when we restrict ourselves to your scriptures. Uh, Father, uh, forgive us, forgive the church for too many times allowing tradition to haze over our eyes from seeing the glories that are in your word. Help us to be a people of the book, a people who believes the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. We love you, Father. We glory in all the provisions that you have given to us, that you, by oath, uh, have uh, committed to us in the Lord's table. You who have begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that. We bless you for that. Bless this, your people, now, with your encouragement and with your grace. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.